0: Hi, I'm Gareth. Welcome along to Somewhere on Earth. And somewhere in the studio with us this time is Peter Guest who's an investigative technology journalist and uh, Peter I think I got that right what else do we need to know about you and the reason I'm going into all this detail is a to put you on the spot but b because you're going to be a regular contributor to this program and listeners need to just get to know you because they are going to hear from you as my so-called presenter's friend (laughs) as we go along what do they need to know?
1: Thanks Gareth well as you said I'm an investigative journalist I tend to work at the places where technology meets society or meets politics so that's whether that's internet blackouts or social media disinformation or the economics of conspiracy theories online. Mm.
0: And you write a bit about business as well? Every now and again. Now and then, okay. So pretty versatile, I'd say, but I think you pretty much nailed it there that you're into the investigative stuff, you know, the the, the I suppose the rights and the issues-related side of technology journalism. We've nailed it there, Peter. We know who you are, so let's get going. And coming up today... Keeping Pete and I company are three fabulous guests. One has been significantly bumping up diversity on Wikipedia, having added around 2000 entries about women scientists. Also on the guest list today is the CEO of the US startup that's converting plastic waste into small houses using 3D printing. Also, we have a tech investor in our midst. So what kind of businesses does he invest in? I'll give you a clue. You're listening to one. That's all right here on the Somewhere on Earth podcast. many people to say hello to. So let's start with Jess Wade of Imperial College. And uh, we're going to hear from you as we go along. And we're going to hear about the work that you're doing with Wikipedia, adding uh, women scientists to Wikipedia, people who've otherwise been missing. And you're well known for that. So we will get into that. But uh, Jess, can you just first of all, tell us about your science? What, What is your day job? You're at Imperial College. You're a research fellow, aren't you?
2: I'm a research fellow and I'm a lecturer in functional materials. And what I'm really excited about is looking for new materials for quantum technologies. Everyone around the world has got very excited about quantum computers and quantum systems for sensing or imaging. At the moment, we use materials like superconductors and semiconductors that are kind of energy intensive to make and quite difficult to work with and difficult to integrate into devices. And what I'm really excited about, what we're really excited about at Imperial is trying to use molecules to use the kind of rich library of chemistry to design kind of design and materials with exactly the quantum properties that we want that can enable quantum functionality at room temperature without requiring the kind of complicated cryogenic cooling that superconductors need. So new materials for quantum technologies so that we can have a brighter tomorrow benefiting from all of these remarkable quantum phenomena. Quantum
0: technologies. And of course, there'll be many of our listeners who at least have heard, I'm sure, of this thing called quantum computing. I've become mildly fascinated, if not obsessed with it, just in the last year or so. And my very basic understanding, and you can put me right on this, is that quantum computing is a potential, well, it's it's beginning to happen, but it's a potential of taking computing away from what we could think of as the classical computing model, where all problems are broken down into ones and zeros. Because computers are basically stupid, aren't they? They can only count to one. Um, But in quantum computing, then you're able to kind of take the computer from just those binary states of zero and one. And some people say a qubit, so that's like the bit in a quantum computer, isn't it? Some people say, hey, it can be both a zero and one at the same time. Isn't it more the case that it's in a probabilistic state of somewhere between zero and one at the same time
2: right so it's in this superposition of zero and one and actually that lets you do all of these really complicated algorithms and compute complicated calculations quantum computers are really really good at some things they're really good at route optimization so design deciding a really difficult route whether that's to get around a city or to track ships around the ocean um, and that's because they have this space between the zero and one of a conventional classical bit or they're really really good at things like designing complicated materials or drug discovery because they can explore a whole landscape of options without having to go to that binary system. So there are certain problems that quantum computers will be one day really good at solving. Okay,
0: Okay. so that's the good news. The bad news is they need to work at very low temperatures.
2: The bad news is the ones that the most companies, the most big tech companies at the moment are investing in materials that have to operate at really low temperatures, which are really, really energy intensive, massively power demanding, um, and not very compatible with thinking about the more sustainable way we're trying to imagine technologies of the future
0: which is where you and the chemists are coming in saying hey if we could just come up with designer molecules as you put it then we might be able to make this very exciting technology work at temperatures other than the coldest thing in the universe therefore exactly (laughs) so much refrigeration because a quantum computer is just like an amazing thing with a hugely powerful fridge attached to it You, you just need a fridge that's less powerful
2: we may not even need a fridge. We may be able to do it room temperature. You
0: are you are <laughs> blowing my tiny mind. But there are of course risks in all this, and investors are looking on. Many of them really piling in. I mean, billions has already gone into right. quantum computing. I wonder what an investor might think. Thank goodness that we have Evan Donald <laughs> around the table, who um, we are going to hear from again. Evan, we're going to get to you and do a proper interview uh, later in the show. But. Wearing your investor hat, what do you make of quantum computing? And then hearing somebody like Jess Wade sitting here in the studio saying, "Hey, folks, we can give you quantum computers and quantum technologies in general that don't need this very high energy cost of being refrigerated right down to ridiculously cold temperatures."
3: I think technology has a history of being incubated in educational establishments and then making its way into commercial spaces, and you you need that research base to actually kick the whole thing off. I mean, it works really well in the US where you, where you, you have um, university endowment funds who invest in venture capital and then the money that gets made out of those venture capital investments gets ploughed back into the universities. Um, we're not so strong on that yet, or at the moment, I think, in the UK and Europe, but I think that's a model that, that works really well. That the but, but no, without a doubt, I mean, c- quantum computing is very interesting and if somebody could deliver... Room temperature quantum computing, a little bit like nuclear fusion, if somebody could deliver a, a low energy version, containable version of nuclear fusion. That would be something that investors would jump on.
0: Mm, no, sure thing. And um, Evan mentioned universities there, Jess. But uh, of course, uh, you're at a university, so you're the right person to comment on this. But a load of money is also coming in from state actors and defence as well, isn't it? Especially over worries among many nation states to, about the potential of this technology to break encryption and do some very uh, interesting. You don't have to comment necessarily on the on the dark side. But what about that point Evan made about universities?
2: Well, I think I think the UK government have put a lot. Of money into it recently in March they they committed the national quantum strategy in the UK commits two point five billion pounds over the next ten years to developing new quantum technologies to training the next generation of quantum researchers and that's all based on these kind of industry academia partnerships and building a really robust quantum ecosystem in the UK we actually have a phenomenal program probably modelled on America um, at Imperial but a deep technology program that's working with the business school and trying to bring in venture capital. capital. Capital money and make us understand how to communicate complicated science to investors and also make venture capital people excited about the potential of quantum technology. So I think. The UK is starting to learn about the need for this kind of accelerator programme and incubator system. But it, you're right, we're nowhere near as advanced as America in that area.
0: All right, OK. Um, well, well let's, let's talk further as we go along, Evan, because I do want to meet our next guest, um, CEO uh, Ross Maguire. I say he's a CEO. He's a CEO of a company that makes 3D printed homes. Um, so just give us the name of your company there, please, Ross. And uh, just tell us uh, what you're doing, 3D printed houses. Yeah,
4: so our company name is Azure Printed Homes, and uh, we're essentially taking plastic waste, uh, recycling it, adding some strengtheners like uh, carbon fiber and glass fiber, and then uh, printing it in our factory to create very unique designs and structures that are printed in one day, and then we Complete the rest of the prefabrication process so that we deliver units that are ready to plug in and fix to a foundation and and live in immediately. So we're trying to solve a few problems, i.e., the the housing crisis and uh, environmental issues that we have with the amount of waste that's produced in construction and building homes, and yeah, um, yeah. And sure.
0: Even as part of the relief effort after disasters, I uh, want to get into that. Just to explain to the dear listener, you are in your factory at the moment. All is quiet at present yes. so in the sound check, we heard all <laughs> kinds of stuff going on in there unlike us you're not in this hermetically sealed acoustically optimized environment and i'm rather hoping we get some some banging some crashing some machine noises there to listen it really gets a sense of location okay so we'll get into some of the use cases but i'm also interested in the actual m- raw material here though so this is plastic waste i'm assuming things like plastic bottles that have been thrown away stuff that you're picking up from recycling centers so how much of one of your 3D printed houses, what proportion of a particular building is made from uh, recycled materials?
4: So one of our, our largest module print that we do is a, a 10 by 20 foot, sorry, it's feet. Um, oh, We we can I'm convert, planetized. you're in America, we're that. in the
0: UK, we, we like feet for, as, as well, but um, I said not the feet we walk on, but you know what I mean. But yeah, for our international listeners, what you said, 10 or 20 feet, that's about three or four metres. Okay.
1: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: AI is changing the game of business. Will you be on the winning team? I'm Jordan Wilson, the host of the Everyday AI podcast, and your coach to help you learn the X's and O's of AI. Artificial intelligence isn't just a new player in the game, it's a new sport altogether. So if you don't quickly put AI into play, your competitors will run up the score. I've spent my whole life building winning teams, from coaching basketball to working with big players like Nike and Jordan Brand. My next move? Helping you win with everyday AI. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or on everydayaipodcast.com. Let's tap into AI together and put points on the board.
4: And uh, and we have around in each one of those units, each one of those modules that we print, there's around 100,000 plastic bottles that goes into each one to kind of give you a
0: a gauge on the the number and the amount that goes into it yeah sure okay so you need obviously a lot of raw material but what, what i'm trying to get a handle on is when you say that the places are made out of recyclables i mean is it like just 20 10 percent of one of these houses maybe more like 50 or 100 where are you about whereabouts are you proportionally speaking
4: in our print material, around seventy percent of it is uh, is recycled material.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so you're talking about the um, cost of living crisis that I know is a big burden in many countries, and housing crises. Apart from anything else, but also, what about in the um, disaster relief? side of things can you tell me more about how you your houses maybe or perhaps already have been part of for instance helping in uh, maui following the flooding
4: yeah they had the uh, fires actually in maui they had uh, oh, fires that right. took out, wrong disaster took out Fire, yeah. part of the island yeah so they lost i think the count was up to two thousand or so homes but uh an organization here in the states called fema um reached out to us asking what the potential speed and and quantity that we could deliver to Maui. We obviously, with our products, we have thought about that sort of thing in the past, not just uh, emergency relief, but also to isolated areas. And the benefit of our technology is that it's kind of suited to isolated islands and locations because creating a manufacturing plant is relatively quick for us to set up. It only takes two to three weeks for us to get a system up and running in a new location with obviously the lead times for a lot of our components are a little bit longer but it <clears throat> takes two to three weeks to set up a an assembly line and then uh, we can produce a unit a day off of each printer so wow, our speed rapid. of response is, is quite is quite quick and obviously we're utilizing waste from the area as well so it's um yeah
0: oh so the, the waste is sourced locally as well then
4: here in the states we try to keep it as local as we can i mean that's a big part of The motivation to to use recycled waste is because i think even if you take plastic in isolation around i think only like six percent of the waste in the u.s that is sent for recycling is actually reused so like uh, the other 90 odd percent still goes into landfill even though we're separating it in our uh Recycling centres and sending it off. There's a huge amount that's ready to be reused. So.
0: All right, yeah, yeah, okay. So efficient use of materials there. Says Ross. What says uh, Peter Guest here, listening to this here in London? And what do you make of these, uh, you know, 3D printed homes from recycled uh, materials?
1: That's fascinating, Ross. I'd love to maybe hear from you a little bit about what the process of setting up the the facility is actually like. Because you're talking about manufacturing, you're talking about building supply chains. You know, I'm envisioning factories and power plants and shipping containers. These are things you don't get in a disaster zone. These are things you don't get in an isolated island. So how do you actually put this thing together?
4: I mean, each printer that we set up can effectively fit into a container. Um, So for instance, if we were serving an isolated island like Maui, then our entire uh, printer system can go into one container. And then once it's there, obviously there's a certain amount of equipment um, necessary to set it up, forklifts and whatnot. I I probably can't describe it in too much detail just because there's, there's some pending IP related to it. Oh,
0: you can tell us. But but we, but we get the idea, yeah. But you take the whole kit and caboodle to the site with you. You're sourcing a load of the recycling locally as well. And, you know, you're able to pretty quickly get on the ground and get buildings made. Now, are these just temporary structures or do, do you anticipate them lasting for some time?
4: No, I mean, that was another attraction to kind of selecting recycled plastic because we all know that that it's a it's a headache to dispose of in itself so we've created these structures and if i'm honest plastic's biggest threat is the sun and uv attack so what we do is we one we add a uv stabilizer into our print mixture and then we also put a uv uh, coating on the exterior so that from our provider, we get a 25 year warranty of UV protection. So effectively the main deterrent against the use of plastic, we're providing a defense or armor against it for 25 years minimum. And then obviously it can just be replenished every, uh, Twenty or so years, so that the life is extended each time. So yeah, we don't see these as being temporary solutions. They they have a uh, a long life. To there's, them.
0: there's there's a, a lifetime. So final few words from this on this from you, then Peter Guest. Then you know maybe about the practicalities or indeed having three D printers that are that large.
1: Oh, well, I, mean, I, I find it fascinating. I mean, we've seen in sort of disaster response over the last, I'd say, twenty years, technologies that. Seemed to have very few practical, you know, practical uses outside of labs or homes. Whether it's 3D printers, drones, back in the day yeah, in high 3D so
0: printers all. creating tat at home, basically, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> or, or you know, things that were sort of very industrial suddenly turning up in places where they're actually needed, and there's a there's a use case that maybe we didn't envision, or maybe the venture capitalists in, in the start didn't envision as a, you know, being a humanitarian purpose. It's fascinating.
0: Okay, all right. Well, we'll we'll leave it there. I'm sure we'll be back in touch again, um, Ross, question? but not until Jess is going to come in with a question because I was thinking about you during that interview, Jess, because you, you're thinking about materials and you started the programme talking about molecules. Um, is this this is just too large to get... You're the, the quantum person in the room here. You know, this is on enormous So <laughs> I'm
2: interested in materials for new kinds of technologies. I did a PhD and a huge amount of UK research effort actually has gone into printed photovoltaics, so kind of using polymer-based materials that can be used as solar cells and i wondered if there's any of that kind of thinking that not only can you you know build this incredibly versatile and and robust house um out of plastics but could you also print photovoltaics into the glass oh, such for a good the windows question.
0: like and incorporate plastic electronics as well though. yeah yeah
4: dream scenario for us yeah i mean right now we use traditional solar panels and and in some cases we use like a thin film solar panel but yeah i mean i'm not aware of something that's readily available to us yet but uh that would be many birds with one stone to have um solar power being generated from the print material itself as well so yeah,
0: yeah well when you start Maybe doing that the future and it's a when rather than an if then you can thank jess wade and this podcast we're, for we're collaborating planting planting that little seed <laughs> yeah there you go <laughs> Ross Maguire thank you so much that's uh, Ross Maguire of uh, Azure and let's pick up then with Jess Wade Um, and that idea then of plastic electronics which is one of your research interests as you've said and uh, this presumably means that such structures as 3D printed homes from polymers from plastics because they could incorporate sensors couldn't they for the weather seismic sensors yeah you can do super clever
2: things I think there's a whole facility in Wales Wales got a huge amount of money to invest into making these kind of smart homes and they have, you know, photovoltaics as windows, they have sensors that will moderate the colour of the window, these kind of photochromic, photochromic windows to moderate the amount of heat that comes into the building or to generate electricity if you want to generate electricity in particular weather conditions. And so certainly you can start to think about making everything in your household or in new build houses, a functional technology that you can use to better inform how you regulate energy dissipation through the building or generate energy as a result of it. Oh, I think same. we can get a lot cleverer, cleverer, I think we can get a lot more <laughs> clever if we work between material scientists, engineers and kind of architects. You yeah. could have this beautiful synergy of doing something genuinely innovative and sustainable.
0: Sure thing. All right. So I also want to talk to you then about Wikipedia and you're very well known for this, but for those who may not have, have heard about this uh, kind of this initiative, this, this effort, this project you've had over the last, what, five, six years, it's to put more women scientists onto Wikipedia. So... Why specifically? Roll back to before you got involved. What was Wikipedia like in terms of representing science by women?
2: So so Wikipedia is obviously a f- phenomenal platform. Probably everyone in this room's been on it maybe today, maybe in constructing this script or flag. Oh, um, but it's, you know, this democratised platform for knowledge sharing that is used by everyone all over the world, irrespective of your age or your job description or which political party you affiliate yourself with. People really rely on Wikipedia. And that's, that's quite incredible at this day and age to still have that. It's just over 20 years old. Um, the onset of Wikipedia coincided with the start of the internet. And so you had a small group of dedicated individuals who contributed the majority of content. And um, they were mainly men and they were mainly in North America. And unfortunately, that demographic hasn't really shifted. You still have between kind of 80 and 90% of Wikipedia editors being men, mostly from the Northern Hemisphere. And if you look at the diversity of the types of topics that they write about, particularly in biographies, it reflects things that they're interested in. So it's kind of, you know, cricket players, footballers, people who build battleships. It's not women scientists, it's not black scientists, it's not really cool Indian engineers. Um, And I think Wikipedia is this phenomenally important platform for knowledge sharing working in um, a university like I do, I have this huge access to knowledge and information all the time that I'm acutely aware other people in the world don't have. And the world would be a much better place if we could share that more freely. And I see Wikipedia as one of these really remarkable platforms to do that on. When I found out that it wasn't quite as perfect as I'd been brought up to believe, (laughs) um, I thought I I have to do something about that. And I I don't like kind of sitting around and moaning about something. I like doing something about it. So I started writing these Wikipedia biographies of women scientists and scientists from other historically excluded groups and um, kind of took off. I got, I got really excited about it. I, you know, I spend my days in a lab or in a lecture theatre teaching and then I go home at night and have this opportunity to learn about this completely new person or this new concept or this new methodology. And actually in putting them on the internet, you get them a lot more exposure and recognition as well. So you start to see, you know, this extraordinary mathematician who should should have had this recognition in the 70s or 80s is now being honoured in the 2020s because their story is on a platform where everyone can read it. And, and I find that quite beautiful and, and you know, Some people have been excited by this project. They've kind of translated these biographies into different languages. Some professors have put it into their undergraduate teaching that their students will now research and write biographies. So it's kind of, you know, it's grown into something that's much, much bigger than me.
0: Sure. And how many have you done by now?
2: I've written over 2,000 biographies. Wow. Sometimes I get distracted by writing proposals for quantum science. But, but other than <laughs> Don't that, so I, I spend... It's a day job getting in the way. <laughs> I, 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 still, I still love it. And, you know... I think I've I've noticed a really big shift. Something I try and do um, is to look at who's become a fellow of the Royal Society or the American Association for the Advancement of Science or who's got one of these big prestigious, you know, the MacArthur Genius Grants just came out and things like that. And when you look at these extraordinary places where really bright and remarkable people are celebrated and you're starting to see a lot more diversity in those lists, you're starting to see black scientists recognised a lot more, you're starting to see women scientists in those lists a lot more and they're Equally as exceptional as their male counterparts, they're just finally getting this recognition. So, you know, my job's a lot easier now. I don't have to trawl the internet for people to write about. I just find them in these places. And
0: and actually, maybe the fact that uh, you and the people like you who have become a real big part of this, uh, the fact that these biographies are going up in the first place makes women scientists more likely to win awards and get the accolades? Because who knew? Probably the grant-giving bodies and the people on awards committees, the, the first thing they do is look somebody up in Wikipedia and they're like, oh, well, she's not there. No, clearly can't be much of a scientist. Well, it, so, yeah. It's
2: also more helpful. You know, I've written a bunch of these citations. I nominate people for prizes all the time. Um, and when you're going to sit down to write someone's prize nomination, um, you don't always have access to their CV. They may not have an up-to-date CV on the internet. You don't necessarily want to tell them. And actually having that information on Wikipedia collected in one place that gives this kind of biographical information, but also a a jargon-free introduction to what they've contributed to the field. And that's really, really useful. There was a phenomenal researcher, everyone cast their minds back to the pandemic, but one of the vaccinologists was a phenomenal woman called Kizzy Corbett. She made the Moderna NIH vaccine. She went on to become one of Harvard's youngest faculty members. But I wrote her Wikipedia page and she's just the most sensational woman. And then she was nominated by Fauci for Time Person of the Year and I just like the thought that Fauci read my Wikipedia page that I'd written in writing his citation for Person (laughs) of the Year.
0: I bet that happened (laughs) All right, and now uh, we want listeners to get in touch as well because it would be very splendid dear listener out there if you can suggest uh, women that you think should be added to Wikipedia so you know female scientists and I suppose we can widen that up because we're a tech podcast to women in tech who should be included and haven't been so yeah if you want to fly the flag and let us know so that we can then let Jess know and Jess can get very angry about it and then do something about it and um, then our email address is hello at somewhereonearth.co that's hello at somewhereonearth.co and we're on whatsapp uh, international code 44 7486 329 so that's code 44 7486 329 484. Get in touch. Let us know about your uh, women scientist suggestions, please. Even if you are a woman scientist yourself who's not been on Wikipedia and thinks it's about time that right was wronged, we want to hear from you too. Um, so, Peter, you're listening intently to Jess there and her story and her, Wiki- her Wikipedian exploits.
1: Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand wikipedian as a citizen yes. of the internet isn't it um yeah no it's it's absolutely fascinating it's a brilliant brilliant initiative i mean so i spend a lot of time covering stories about the sort of dark side of the internet, which means I'm spending a lot of time on Twitter or X. And I mean, as we record today, I think that one of the biggest stories has been X's erstwhile new owner taking on Wikipedia and complaining about its funding and so on. And it has made Wikipedia look like this kind of rational island of calm and sanity and sense on a increasingly kind of troubled internet. But I'm really curious actually about your experience on other platforms because you've talked about this kind of, um, you know, erasure by omission of all of these these amazing scientists, but there's kind of a very present erasure of diverse voices on other platforms now. It's been going on for years. It seems seems to me to be getting worse. I'd be curious as to your experiences.
2: Um, I mean. I don't know how much of it's been by um, choice. I, I used to be quite active on Twitter. I used it all the time. It was phenomenally important for me when I was building up my scientific career. And then, you know, probably the day after the new the new leadership took over it became a much less exciting or encouraging or inspiring place to me. So, And, and I think a lot of people from certain demographic groups have been pushed off there because of the hostility that they experience on the site so so i think certainly people who have these platforms and spaces i would say that the reason that i'm i'm so keen to to get women and and people from other historically excluded groups in science onto wikipedia is to kind of um level the playing field a little bit so, you know the men are on there wikipedia is our encyclopedia now you know our textbook our place to archive history. Um, And if you look back in time, people have done a very good job of celebrating the exploits and the um, achievements of men and not a very good job of documenting women. So the reason that I really want, you know, they can... You can populate a blog full of women scientists that no one will ever read, but people will keep going to Wikipedia. So so I think, yes, other platforms are probably just as good at erasing the contributions of people who've been historically marginalised. But it's incredibly important we make sure women's voices and other silenced voices are shared equally on platforms like Wikipedia and in you know conventional journalism and mainstream media as well.
1: Yeah, and for the next generation of it, because it's something we look at Each generation of the internet encodes the biases of the one that existed before it, you know, the ownership of it. And now we're moving into an AI, you know, generative AI era where you put scientists into name your AI uh, image generator and it produces a certain set of results based on what was there before.
2: Right. What was there up to 2021 or something like that? So we're still operating before I really made the 2000 mark.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, Jess... Thank you. Um, And let's see uh, what you, Jess, uh, and or Peter have to say about um, Evan Main Donald, who's in the studio. You heard him at the top of the programme. I said he was an investor. I didn't say a whole lot more apart from that. But if you want to get to know Evan, he's managing partner of Hyperlight Ventures, which is a venture capital fund, um, which is interested in ventures that generate positive social and environmental impact. And uh, presumably, Evan, you would include in that positive social impact, um, equality and diversity, very much along the lines of the conversation we've just been having.
3: Absolutely. And I think venture capital has the potential to, um, if deployed in the right way, to significantly increase or improve social diversity. And it's interesting, actually, the thing that we were just talking about with um, Wikipedia, I think Jess said at the outset, because it's a system which was effectively people contribute to voluntarily, it reflects the interests of the people who contributed to it in the first place, which were the demographics of the people who were in the tech industry were and and actually it's interesting because venture capital has tr- traditionally been the sort of home of um, older white men and there's a huge opportunity for the democratisation of venture capital and the globalisation of venture capital to bring the advantages that it that it brings to the rest of the world, to lots of places which are underserved in terms of investment. And, and that's something that I'm very interested in,
0: yeah, sure, so it is that kind of if I might be a bit wide eyed about this you're making the world a better place, but hey there's a business case there's an investment case there there's money to be made from that as well um Evan, we should uh, say as well is backing this podcast, thanks Evan, um thanks to the fact you're here I don't have to sell my house, so I appreciate that um <laughs> so us <laughs> uh, and i we had um Nana before as well our other backer on the show not so long ago, and uh the question I asked Anna is the same one I'm going to pose to you, Evan. And I'm, I'm looking for a technology answer here as well about podcasting. What is it about this lo-fi thing, i.e. audio in people's ears, that you think makes such an exciting investment, especially when you're talking about quantum computing these days and all these other things? And believe me, I'm not trying to talk you out of this, but why podcasting, matey? What is, where's the
3: investment? So... I think, as you as you know, Summer on Earth is not just about podcast. It's about it's about an ecosystem. So, the intention is not just to put content out. It's also to create tech for good events. And, and by the way, the content is about tech for good, which really is the sort of tech that we invest in. And then that feeds into opportunities for investment. And it also potentially feeds into in, investors who may want to invest in a fund that has the philosophy. That a fund like Hyperlight Ventures does, or a venture capital firm that has that like Hyperlite Ventures does. but I, I think the key to it really, from my perspective, is that it's it's a flywheel. And what we do as a venture capital firm, we, we 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 invest in startups that harness the power of markets to make the world a better place. And the key word is invest. We're not giving money away. We're putting money into companies that have a strong source of competitive advantage and that generate positive social and environmental impact. Because they have a strong source of competitive advantage, they generate exceptional profitability. That profitability allows them to grow and grow quickly, and so the money that we invest means that it makes a return of 100 or 1,000 times what we put into the, into the venture, and that generates 100 or 1,000 times the amount of positive impact than just giving somebody some money to create impact would. So what we're trying to do is change the world through investing in technologies that create that impact. Yeah. What other kind of technologies have for you,
0: you know, that flywheel effect? And bear in mind, people are listening to this because they're interested in tech and perhaps they want to hear from you. And they've already heard some from Jess about what's around the corner, what's the really cool stuff, the kind of stuff that you're looking into now that us lot will probably get around to reporting in a year's time or five years time
3: so three three d printed construction is, is a very interesting one, and I think you know one of the evolutions of that is three d printed construction in space. Space tech is a big area, and so the, the question is when, when we get to space, when rockets like SpaceX start taking their payloads up, how are we going to generate dwellings in space we're probably going to need to three d print them another one is low energy nuclear fusion um, so there are there's a lot of research going into nuclear fusion at the moment, and, and it looks like we might be quite close to some breakthroughs in those areas. Those sorts of technologies have. Potential to have a huge impact on the world uh, in terms of climate change. In relation to the 3D printed construction one, that's got an enorm- enormous potential to revolutionise construction supply chains. And that particular area is it's growing very fast. It's it's forecast to hit something like 750 billion. This is 3D printed construction by 2031 from a base of about six billion today. But that's a that's a, a very small proportion of the overall value of the global construction industry. So. These technologies have huge potential. The potential for nuclear fusion is estimated at something like 41 trillion if somebody can make that breakthrough.
0: Yeah, but nuclear fusion has been spoken of as one of those technologies. It's the technology of the future and always will be. You must have heard that before, Peter. Have you written about nuclear fusion in your long tech journalist career?
1: Not nuclear fusion, no. But, I mean, how many of these sort of silver bullets have we have we talked about? It happens up to including quantum computing for a decade ago when we said it was going to be there around the
0: corner and and we're still kind of waiting. So, Yeah. Okay, I'm detecting, Evan, healthy scepticism from Peter. What about you, Jess?
2: (laughs) I I think one of the things that comes out from all of this conversation is that we need people with the right skills. You know, you need people with material science skills who can also speak to engineers, who can go and speak to the weird and wonderful quantum physicists. And, And without all of those conversations happening and without the right technical skills in your population, you'll never be able to do these things. Quantum computing could have happened 10 years ago, but we didn't have physicists who were speaking to engineers and material scientists. So it kind of got stuck in its tracks because you couldn't optimise the materials further without going into different kinds of labs that they didn't have access to. So I really think we need that kind of joined up thinking. We need to inspire a new generation of researchers and we need to keep them in science and tech jobs so that we can have these kind of breakthrough technologies of the future.
0: Yeah, so Evan, a lot of it is about just making sure that we have the right people around the table. You know, of course there's the high tech, there's the amazing stuff going on in the research labs. But if you don't have the right people and a diverse array of people around the table in a room, then not a lot is going to happen. I suppose that's me telling you that, but (laughs) I'm putting it to you as a
3: proposition. Diversity is super important and social diversity brings cognitive diversity as well. And cognitive diversity brings new ideas. It brings things that if you bring a a group of socially non-diverse people together that that don't emerge. So it's super important. But I, I also think this point that we were talking about earlier in terms of the way that venture capital works in the US or the way that educational establishments interface with venture capital in the US is important. Jessica, you mentioned um, government funding in um, earlier on and it, of course government funding of, of research and, of, and, and working with venture capital is important but the point about universities like Harvard and Stanford and actually investing their endowment funds in venture capital and then getting the benefit of that and putting that back into ed- education is, is it's a flywheel. In the same way that... When we invest in businesses, it creates this flywheel of profitability and impact and it enables the money that's put in them to actually multiply hundreds or thousands of times. The same thing can happen in the venture capital world where the profits from venture capital flow back into the endowment funds of the universities and they get get that gets reinvested in education and research and that That sort of a flywheel, I think, is something that could really turbocharge what we do in Vich Capital in the UK. All
0: right. So final and brief words from Jess and then Peter. The flywheel then. I bet you like the science metaphor there, don't you?
2: No, I love the science (laughs) metaphor. But I also like this kind of ecosystem approach to creating new technology, to looking at the challenges society faces, to saying what we can actually do with quantum phenomena or optoelectronic devices, and then getting everyone around the table to kind of co-create whatever solution we come up with. I, I, I find that particular... Inspiring, I think. I think we're doing it really, really well at Imperial, and I look forward to keeping these conversations going with with Evan and with Pete um, about how we can work on it further.
0: Yeah, Peter,
1: I mean, think it's, it's fascinating to come full circle to where we started with Wikipedia. Right, this is talking about collective endeavour and and bringing people together in, in a in a room to to have conversations. You said cognitive and, cognitive diversity, that isn't something you've seen in the old school of venture capital. There's a lot of herd mentality you see. Everyone piling in when it's already a little bit too late because they've been overexcited about it. Precisely. (laughs) Um, But actually some of the best things that we've seen in technology over the last 20 years have been collective endeavour. It's been scientists working with venture capitalists. It's been ordinary people working with technology. It's socialised response rather than uh, top-down decision-making. It's like Ross's homes. Like 3D There you go, as an
0: example. Right, well, we're a very sociable lot here, but uh, we're going to be antisocial now and say goodbye. Uh, We need to be out of here. So (laughs) thank you very much to you, Jess and Evan and Peter and Ross, who we heard from earlier. So, yes, we are somewhere on Earth and we go out, we find stories, we make them news and then change the world. Yes, we're very modest, aren't we? Um, Let's give you that number again so you can, look, program it into your phone and then you can just... Tell us what you think. Send us voice notes. Just you name it. Say so for WhatsApp, it's uh, code 44 7486 329 484. Go on, put us in your favourites. We're worth it. And while you're at it, email us hello at somewhereonearth.co. Um, so there you go. That will do for this week. We have uh, over the other side of the glass where the grown-ups are. We have the excellent uh, Stevie Arnoldi and also Keziah Wenham-Kenyon. And our editor is Anya Litrovich. And we join you from the excellent place here at Lanson's Team Farner. That's why we sound so fabulous. There you go. That was Somewhere On Earth. There'll be more where this came from next time. See you then. Bye-bye.